0: This is our line-by-line, verse-by-verse study of the book of Luke. We are diving into a particular section where Jesus is at a meal. He's been invited by the ruler of a synagogue to share in a meal with other Pharisees and leaders. We talked about this before. They would sit around the table, the rabbis, and people would come in and they would listen to the conversation that was taking place. This meal has been a little awkward up to this point. Because as soon as they got up to go to the meal, first of all, there was a healing on the Sabbath day that caused problems. Then when they get up to go to the meal, Jesus noticed that people fought for the most honorable seat. All their seats around their table meant something. The closer you were to the host, the more important you were. Those were the desired seats. The further away you were, the less important you were. And so when Jesus got to the table, he noticed the way they took their seats. And he said, when you are invited to a wedding, Don't fight for the best seat there. Which would be just one of those awkward moments because there's somebody sitting there in the best seat who fought for it, listening to what Jesus says. Then when he's done with that, he turns to the host. And he says, and when you give a a dinner, don't invite your friends, but invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. So that's another awkward moment. It's just kind of like Jesus is just, he, he's close to the cross now. He is not mincing words. He's directly challenging people. And so there's a guy, probably a peacemaker. Well, what do you do in your house? You got, we got Thanksgiving coming up. I wonder if there'll be any awkward statements that will go on in your home to where you just kind of go, well, maybe I'll just go hang out in the backyard for a while. <laughs> or maybe you'll say something like, incredible November weather we've been having, Right? Anything to change the, the topic. So in verse 15, it says, uh, oh, and by the way, I just, for, for, for the sake of this, uh, for the sake of the study, that we're talking about commitment and we're talking about what it really means to carry your cross. We're going to get to that. Jesus covers that in this section. So in verse 15, uh, Jesus, uh, it says, now, when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, Jesus addressing the host and the pers- and the people who took the best seats, he said... To him, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, that's a pretty generic statement. That's a a change of topic. Blessed is he who eats bread in the kingdom of God. Well, thank you very much. Yes, that's true. And so Jesus bounces off of that. He's like, you want to talk about those that are entering the kingdom of God? Let's talk about them. Then he said to him, and now he gives a parable. And parables in the Bible are stories that, are, that come alongside of truth to help you understand the truth better. But parables are also stories that are brought, brought alongside of truth to make you have to think about it and, and maybe you won't understand it. So that if you don't really have a commitment to understand what's being said, it's being said so you won't understand. If you have a commitment to dig in, it's being said so you will understand. The Bible says God is a rewarder for those who diligently seek him. God doesn't reward people who nominally seek him. And the Bible says in the Old Testament, you will seek him and find him if you search for him with all of your heart. So it speaks of that commitment level that you have to have to be able to really dive in. And so he gives this this parable. Then he said to them, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many and sent his servants at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they, with one accord, began to make excuses. The first said, I've bought a piece of ground. I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. The second said, I uh, must go, excuse me. Another said, I have bought five oxen, yoke of oxen, and I'm going to test them. I ask that I may be excused. Still another said, I've married a wife, And therefore, I cannot come. (laughs) Notice he doesn't even ask to be excused. It's like, this is just understood by everybody. I've married a wife and therefore I cannot go. Now, let's talk for a moment about who this great supper is for in the beginning. So this great supper is the kingdom of God. That's what it represents. And probably speaking of the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is in the end of the book of Revelation, and we know now is for the church, But originally, the kingdom of God was for the nation of Israel. And we're told in the Old Testament that God raised up Israel, Abraham and Isaac and the descendants of Isaac, so that all the nations of the world would be blessed. When you study the Old Testament, it's extremely clear that God wanted to bless the Gentiles through the nation of Israel. That was God's plan. When Jesus showed up, they made their excuses. They were like, you're the Messiah. We don't want you. We've got something we've got to do. And they rejected their Messiah. Now, the Bible very clearly tells us that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. This is Romans 11, I think it's 28. So blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in and then they will all be saved. So yes, Jesus is talking about giving the, the blessing of the Messiah to Israel to bless all nations. But when they reject him as their Savior, as their Messiah, he sets them aside. But he doesn't set them aside forever. One day, the Bible says, again, Romans eleven twenty eight, 28, they will all be saved. And I don't know if all there means every single one of them, but I know it can't mean a few of them. So we have this revival towards their Messiah in our future, Zechariah uh, 12, 10, God says, And I will pour out a spirit of mercy and grace on Jerusalem, and they will mourn for me as one who mourns for an only son when they look upon me whom they've pierced. That's one to look up, by the way. When did they pierce God in Jerusalem. And God promises he's going to pour out a spirit of mercy and grace on Jerusalem again. One day they, in in Ezekiel 40, 36 through 40, has to deal with the restoration of the land of Israel, the people of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, and the temple. And then the people of Israel to himself. So he's going to bring Israel back to himself. But right now he's talking about setting them aside because they didn't receive him. They made their excuses. Now, also, it's really good for us to consider whether or not we have some lame excuses because these are pretty lame excuses. In the past, I would have talked about how lame this first excuse is. I've bought, what what does he say here exactly? Um, But they uh, began. I've bought a piece of ground and I must go see it. So my standard line, and I did this last night, my standard line would be, who buys a piece of ground without looking at it? But that doesn't quite work today, does it? People are buying houses without seeing them. They're buying land without seeing them. It's like, this could be a legitimate excuse today. I don't know how legitimate it was in their day, but it could be a legitimate one in their day. But it's meant to be lame. It's meant to be like, instead of going to this great feast, you've you got to go see some land. Is there something in your life that, that keeps you from 100% commitment to Christ that if you're going to look at it from the perspective of eternity, you would go, that's kind of lame. Same is true with the oxen. I bought five yoke of oxen and I've got to go test them. You'd think you'd want to test oxen, especially before you buy them because you could buy some really bad oxen, right? Some really old oxen, cantankerous oxen. There's all kinds of problems that can happen with them. It'd be like you going to buy a car from the 70s and going, I'll just buy it without seeing it. But again, that's happening today too. So I can't really talk about that. The third excuse here is just expect that I have a wife, I can't go. Is there, are there relationships in your life that are keeping you from having God as the highest relationship. Now, we're talking about commitment. We're talking about you even laying down your life to live for him, that you're gonna put Jesus above your own desires and your own heart. But this is nothing new. When Jesus introduces this, the Old Testament has told us that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I don't think there's anything that could tell us that we are supposed to love God more. We're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, but to love God with everything that we have. Now, Jesus brings on this new perspective and this new perspective comes from these excuses. He's gonna bounce off of, especially, I have a wife and therefore I cannot come. So in verse 21, it says, so the servant came and reported these things to the master. The master of the house, being angry, said to the servant, go quickly into the streets and the cities and bring here the poor, the maimed, the lame and the blind. In the kingdom of God, it is easier for someone who is poor to get saved than someone who is rich. And I'm not going to go over all the passages to talk about that. We'll do it at some other point. The way that stuff and money can stand in the way of someone making a commitment to Christ. And someone that was poor in their day, the maimed, the lame, and the blind, would all, unless they were born into a really wealthy family, would all have some challenges in being able to make ends meet. And so the kingdom of God is more accessible to the poor, more accessible to those who realize they have spiritual needs, that they have sin in their lives. Jesus said, I came for tax collectors and sinners. I didn't come to those who were righteous. I came for those who are sinners. And so he says, go out and you invite the poor, these people. And then the master and, um, and uh, still, uh, it says, still there was no room, verse 22. And the servant said, master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is more room, or there's room. Then the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and byways and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of these men who are invited shall taste my supper. And so he's just saying open, and and God's desire anyway through Israel was to reach the Gentiles. We were told that all nations, tribes, tongues, and people are gonna be called to the kingdom of God. That was God's plan. I had, Israel was given a real choice. Had they received Jesus as their Messiah, when Jesus came, the church might look different. I don't know how it would look different, but I assume it would. They had a very real choice. They rejected the Messiah. And because of that, we have the church today, the time of the Gentiles, that God is moving and working. And it has gone out to the highways and byways and compelled anybody that wants to come to be able to come. And um, so then, verse 25, the great multitude went with him. So he leaves the t- Now they're done at the meal. And maybe the host of the meal were like, whew, glad that's done. And he turned and he said to them, so he turns around and looks at the crowd. If any of you comes after me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, yes, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Talk about a crowd thinner. They're all following him. He turns around and he's like, you guys can't follow me unless you hate your your wife. What did he just say? So he says, hate my wife? Now we know that Jesus is using this. Jesus used shock teaching. I I don't know that I've ever heard anybody else try to do it because we're all so afraid of being misunderstood. We wanna make sure we're really clear. So, Jesus at one point said, If your right hand offends you, then cut it off. Better for you to go into eternity with the right hand than to perish in hell where the worm never dies and the fire never goes out with the whole body. Now, and then Jesus just left it there. Now, whenever I teach that passage, I always immediately after I read it, I go, He wasn't, he wasn't saying cut your hand off. He was, this is an analogy. He's telling you to cut things out of your life that are going to keep you out of heaven. But he's not, because I'm afraid someone's going to go, I didn't go cut my hand off. I'm worried about that. Jesus wasn't worried about that. Maybe I shouldn't be that worried about, but I am every time I teach it. So you can't say, look, I hate my wife and I'm just being biblical because Jesus told me to. I don't only hate my wife, I hate my mother and father, I hate my children, I hate everybody. Jesus said, I can't be a disciple unless I hate all these people. Obviously, the Bible says in Ephesians, talking about the role of the husband, husbands, love your wives and die for them as Christ died for the church. That's the role of a husband. I, I think us guys rarely ever live up to that. We're to love them as Christ loves the church and we're to die for them. You say, well, I'll die, die for them, my, my wife. Yeah, but will you do the dishes? you got a pretty far out scenario there. I'll die for her. <laughs> so we've got th- that, that role. We're told love our wives. Agape your wives. So we know Jesus can't be saying that. So what's he saying? I think he's saying the love for Christ has to be so strong that the love for your family, your spouse and your children even, is like hatred compared to your love for God. Now, I think I said a little bit earlier as I was setting up this message that I find myself convicted by that. I find myself asking God, do I love you the way that I used to? I've been in a relationship with Christ since I was 13 years old, and, and, and the love commitment level wanes over time. And I found myself this week just saying to him again, Lord, I wanna live for you, I wanna love you. In the book of Revelation, in chapters two and three, there's this great vision of Christ in chapter one, and then in chapters two and three, there's seven letters to seven churches. Each of these letters have commendations. I, I have, you guys do this, this is good. Has, has a condemn, uh, condemns them, but I have this against you. And if you overcome, this is what you're going to receive. All these letters follow this same pattern. And to Ephesus, he said, I have this for you. You guys love the word of God. You test those who are false prophets. And you found them to be liars. The church at Ephesus loved doctrine. They loved being right. They loved being on the, the right side of the word of God. And whenever I do a study or read that passage in, in second, uh, the, the second chapter of Revelation, I find myself thinking of Calvary Chapel. And I'm not just talking about Calvary Chapel Tucson. I'm talking about Calvary Chapel in general. Because Calvary Chapel started out of the hippie movement. And there's this, this great expression of love towards God in the very beginning of Calvary Chapel. And if you've ever never watched a documentary on the Jesus movement, um, I think there's a new one out, what God, has wrought, uh, what God Has Wrought, which has Chuck Smith in it and talks about the foundations of Chuck Smith and, and beginning Calvary Chapel. But over the years, and because of Chuck, we, we, are, we want solid doctrine. We do not wanna believe something that is wrong. We wanna test those who say they are prophets and we have found them to be liars and we're not gonna follow them. And we are committed to to having right and proper doctrine and and the word of God being our authority. He went on to say to them, but I have this against you. You've left your first love. And so he says, remember, return and repent. Do your first works again or I'm gonna remove your candlestick. In the first chapter, the son of man, this great vision of Jesus, is walking in the midst of the candlesticks. So he's saying his presence is in the church. These seven churches are the seven candlesticks and his presence is in the church. And he's saying, even if a church is doctrinally sound, but doesn't have love, I will not stay at that church. I will not have my presence there. And if he's saying that to the church, then how, how does that apply to our lives as individuals? If we don't have that that deep abiding love for Christ. And so Jesus uses this method to speak to us of the love that we have for him. And and then he says in verse 27, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now we have a cross gobo on the the back wall. We have a cross behind me. I I love having a cross I look at when I preach, by the way just reminds me of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins according to the scriptures. But this was before a cross was ever a religious symbol. A cross was brutal and hideous. A cross was not identified with Christians, but was identified with the Romans and identified with the Romans' desire to torture someone so badly that it would stop any other rebellions. They would crucify people that were involved in treason. They would crucify people for all all kinds of things. The Romans loved to do it. But treason was one of the main reasons to crucify people because it would put down other rebellions. If you crucified thousands of people, this happened in 70 AD when they finally broke through and took Jerusalem. They crucified, they ran out of, uh, Josephus tells us they ran out of wood to be able to crucify people. They crucified so many people. And so Jesus says, pick up your cross. That would, that would invoke a much different feeling than it evokes for us. For us, it's like, yeah, I have my cross on my, you know, necklace, my cross earring, my, my, you know, my cross tattoo. But it's a, it's a torture instrument. And when you pick up your cross, your life is done. You, you are saying, I'm not going to live for myself anymore, but I'm going to follow Jesus. Jesus. When I was 13 years old, someone led me to sinner's prayer and I became a Christian. It was very genuine. I I was transformed. I changed. I suddenly wanted to do what God wanted me to do. I wanted to read the Bible. I wanted to go to church. I wanted to learn more. I had a hunger for God. All of that was true. But during that time frame in my life, I also kind of had this Jesus is my self-help guy. That I've got my plans, my desires, and my goals for my life and if, I, if those get in jeopardy, I need to bring Jesus in to help those happen. Jesus is my co-pilot kind of thing. I'm the pilot, but Jesus, I'm so thankful you're my co-pilot. And if I get in trouble, Jesus, take the wheel. <laughs> that, that was really my heart and my attitude. 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. When I was 18 years old, I was attending an Assembly of God church, a good church. A good, good pastor and uh, a good teacher, I'll put it that way and he had an affair with his secretary. And I saw firsthand scandal in a church and and how that could really devastate a church. And I said, I'm done. If this is what Christianity is about, I'm not not following it. I'm not doing it anymore. Now i had problems in my own life. Had I had things the way they should be, I would not have walked away from God. So I'm not blaming that event for me walking away. That's simply the catalyst which I walked away from. And I can tell you that God came and got me. He it took a year, but God, Jesus left the 99 and came after me. And if there's anything I know as I stand before you today is that Jesus came and got me. And, and I have no question of his love, his desire for me because he came and got me. He took me through it to come and get me and he came and got me. And on the night that I recommitted my life to the Lord, which is a year later, I was away from him for a year. I, this is the prayer I prayed. I. I heard a song on the radio and I was moved by it and I was ready to come back to him. And um, when I got crawled in bed, got ready for bed and I crawled in bed and then I prayed this prayer. Lord, okay, I'm I'm done. No longer what I want but whatever you want. I'm ready to now live for you. What's really funny about that recommitment prayer is that I was thinking no longer what I want. (gasps) This great thing of what I want and now whatever you want you know, send me to Venezuela to go pastor some, you know, village somewhere, I'll do it, whatever you want from me. What I didn't know is that I was giving up so little to gain so much, without even, without even eternity coming into, into, into the, the thought yet. And I do believe that that's what he's saying here, that you have to say, I'm no longer living for me. And, and I wonder how many Christians really hear this message today. Oftentimes sermons are crafted to make them all about the individual. We'll read a story even of Jesus on the cross and all of a sudden the application is, are you being crucified in your workplace today? Are people coming after you? Are people, are people, you know, scourging you? Everything, every application is about an individual when And we're ignoring what the real application to the text is. So the real text here is, are you living your life for you? Or are you living your life for Christ? Are you willing to lay it down and and to take your cross and follow him? And I think we should all not answer right off the top of our heads. I I think that we shouldn't just go, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm giving everything to Christ. But really evaluate it. Really ask him, show me, Lord, reveal to me. Because sin's pretty deceptive. Hebrews tells us that we can get caught up in the deceptiveness of sin. And so may the Lord reveal to us whether or not we have genuinely given our lives wholeheartedly to him. There's a passage that says, I, if God kills me tomorrow, I'll serve him today. That's, that's the kind of commitment we're supposed to have. Doesn't ma- I'm, not, I'm not following God so he can do things for me in the future. If he kills me tomorrow, I'm living for him today because he's my savior and he's my God. And may my life be consumed for him. So he goes on to say here, for which of you intending to build a tower, and he's gonna talk about counting the cost now. So you're gonna lay your life down. You wanna count the cost. You gotta know what you're getting into. So he says, for which of you, verse 28, intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it. Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not set down first and consider with, he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while he is still a great way off, he will send a delegation and ask for conditions of peace. In other words, if you're ready, if you've been coming to church and you're interested in Christ and you're ready to give your life to the Lord, you need to know what he's asking you. He's asking that you lay your life down, that you stop living for your goals, your desires, and your plans, and you pick up whatever God's goals, God's desires, and God's plans for you are, and you live for Him. And if you can't do that, then don't start. Know that's what's asked of you. Don't be like the guy that built a building. Remember when my children, my daughter lived in Orlando. Uh, we would go down there, we'd go by the freeway. There was one giant skyscraper that was half built. We, we went to visit them probably, I don't know, five or six times in seven years, maybe more than that, actually. But um, you drive down the freeway and there's this half done building. And every time you drive by, I wonder what that's about. Wonder why they don't fit, why they're not working on that building. Wonder, that, that's what God doesn't want your life to be. He wants you to know upfront what is asked of you. And, and as Christians, if somehow that love has waned, that you would consider it. Now, he says, um, so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all he has cannot be my disciple. Again, he's being very direct with you. You have to forsake all you have. Now, we know that that doesn't mean, like the rich young ruler who he asked, to give, sell all you've got and come follow me and you will have riches in heaven, he tells him. But the rich young ruler leaves sad because he's rich. The New Testament tells us how we are to address people who have money. He says, tell those who are rich among you not to trust in the uncertainty of riches, but be willing to share. So if you're rich, be generous. Don't trust in the uncertainty of riches. Make sure you trust completely and totally in God. But you are not to live for your bank account. You aren't to live for your retirement. You aren't to live for whatever car you might have or house you may have or whatever level in life you're at where you find your identity. Our identity is now to be shifted and living for Christ. And that's why we forsake it all. That's why we say, I'm not going to live for this anymore. But I am now going to live for Christ. And that's what he expects of each one of us. And so he tells one final parable, and it's connected. He says, salt is good. That's how Jesus starts this little parable. Salt is good. And salt in the ancient world was especially good. Because there was no way for you to refrigerate your food. In their day, you would butcher an animal... You would cook whatever you could cook right away. And then you would rub salt on it. And the characteristic of salt is that it kills bacteria. It kills germs. So you rub salt on your meat. You get a good heavy coating of it. You hang it out, let it dry out with that salt in there. Salt will permeate the meat. It actually goes into the meat and will keep the meat from going into corruption. So salt is good. It stops corruption. Now, here's the thing. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. We understand that analogy very well. And he says, and you are the salt of the earth. We stop corruption. We who have been called by Christ, it's like we've been rubbed into this world so that we affect the world around us. If you think that the the world is in a bad place now, take all the Christians out of the world, which one day will happen, by the way, but take all the Christians out of the world and you'll realize we we stopped corrosion. That's what we do. So he says, salt is good, but if salt loses its flavor. Now, the, the science of salt, I'm going to not say that joke. <laughs> All, you know, there's jokes that come out and it's like, no, no, no. <laughs> so the science of salt is that it's, it's a basic, it's an element and it can't be, it can't lose its flavor. But it can be contaminated. It, we, we have fresh salt in our day, but in their day, it could be contaminated by all kinds of things. And if you would rub that contaminated salt on your meat, there were problems. So you wanted to make sure you had good salt. And if you found out that your salt was contaminated, then you had to get rid of it. So he says, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land or the dunghill. It's not fit for the land because if you salt a field, you kill all the plants on it. One of the things that enemies would do when they would take over another country is they would salt certain areas because they just wanted to destroy the land. They didn't want to leave it for them, so they salted it. Israel, the entire nation of Israel, was salted by the Turks in, uh, 400 years ago. They took, the during the Crusades, they took control of it and they salted as much of the land as they possibly could. Now, after a while, the salt is diluted and it runs off and you can grow things on it again, but it takes a long time to do that. So contaminated salt, you couldn't just go out and throw it in the yard. It's not fit for the land because it still has the properties of salt that will still kill your plants. And it's not fit for the dunghill either. You say, well, why not the dunghill? Well, let's use a different word. It's not fit for manure either. <laughs> so they would take their dunghill, they would use it as manure, just like we do today. And so if you threw your salt on the dunghill, you contaminated your manure and now things wouldn't grow because the salt in it would kill it. So it's not fit for the land or the dunghill. So it's thrown out. And in another place, Jesus says, to be trodden underfoot. Why is this salt that's that's contaminated trodden underfoot? Because they threw it on their roads. In order to keep plants from growing on their roads, they would take out their salt and they would throw it on the roads. Now, salt was so important in their day that for hundreds of years, the salary of a Roman soldier was paid in salt. And the word salary actually comes from the word salt. Salt. So that gives you an idea how important it is. So what Jesus is saying to us is, is that if we somehow are corrupted, what good are we? We're not talking about what good are we for going to heaven. We're talking about what good are we here? If we, if we lose our ability to stop corruption in this world, then we're good for nothing. But to be cast out, we aren't doing what Christians are supposed to do. So not only having a love for God is incredibly important, but being called to be light and being salt in this world is incredibly important. And, and you do affect people around you as a Christian. Maybe sometimes you hear that. They'll say things like, I was going to tell that joke, but you know, whatever. Sharon's here. I can't say, I can't tell that joke now because she's here. Or, or, or with me, when someone cusses and they're with me, they know I'm a pastor. And they cuss or, or take the Lord's name in vain. And I never say, I never say to them, listen, excuse me, that's, my God, you offended me. I never say that. So when they take God's name in vain, they look at me and they go, oh, I'm so sorry. I say this, it's not me you've got to worry about. And I say it just like that. I want them to know. The one you're taking his name in vain, I've I got nothing to, to do to you. But, but not me you've got to worry about. you got to worry about him. But we do have that ability to be able to stop the corruption from taking place. So that what this tells us is, is that we can evaluate, or we should evaluate, and may we each do that today, our commitment level. Do we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Has the love of someone, the love of our children, become greater than the love of God? And if if we say yes, then we need to do what he said in Ephesians. We remember the things we did at first, we return to those first things, and we repent. Repent is to change, is to pivot and to change your mind. So you say, I want to love God. God, help me to love you. I'm sorry that my love has grown cold. I want that passion for you. I want to love you with everything we've got. We know Jesus said, if you ask anything according to my will, I'll do it for you. We know it's God's will for you to love him with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength. So when you ask him, it's according to his will and God will answer that. And may we find ourselves just with that new, fresh desire and commitment towards Him. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, thank you so much as we are able to take time to look at this passage and consider our level of commitment. And Lord, we are thankful that Israel is the nation of Israel is being restored. And we see that restoration even happening today. We look forward to when they will be completely restored to you. And and speak to us, reveal to us where. Our, our desire, our passion has grown cold, that we might have a fervency for you. We thank you for this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I'm gonna ask you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed for just a few minutes. And I'm gonna ask that no one would leave early. We're almost done, we'll dismiss you shortly. And, and I'm not gonna do an altar call today for a recommitment of a love for God. I could, but I don't wanna do that. If you, like me, or questioning whether or not your love is what it used to be or whether it's grown cold at all, then deal with that now quietly with you and him. Here you are in church, he's spoken to you. Ask him to give you a great passion. Ask him to not let anything get in the way. Reveal to you what you can do to change that. But I do wanna talk to those of you who have never made a commitment to Christ. You've never invited him in. So the Bible tells us that if you receive him, he gives you the right to become a child of God. He'll actually adopt you into his family as a child of God if you say to him, I want you. Lord, I want you in my life. I receive you. It, It goes on to say that you will be born not of the will of men, but of the will of God. You were born in the flesh when you were born the first time, but you will be born of the Spirit. And the Bible says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So you have to have your spirit brought to life in order to inherit the kingdom of God. So the transformation that happens is that your spirit comes to life. And all of a sudden you're interested in spiritual things. You're interested in God. You want to now live for him as you have invited him in. And you've received received forgiveness for your sins. Told in the Old Testament that God would lay upon him the iniquity of us all. God took your sins, your iniquity, and he will put them on Christ if you invite him in today. If you don't give him that invitation, he won't won't come in. If you say, I don't want you in my life, Jesus, he won't force his way in. But if you receive him, he'll come in and he'll transform you and change you. And you will begin then to live for him. No longer your plans, your desires, but now whatever God plans and whatever God desires. And I do wonder, what does God have planned for you? What does God want for you?